In this episode, we talk to Ryan Callahan and Trevor Hubbs about Backcountry Hunters and Anglers Armed Forces Initiative. Backcountry Hunters and Anglers Armed Forces Initiative strives to ensure that those on active duty in the National Guard, reservists, veterans, and Gold Star families continue to take active roles in public landowners while providing a constructive outlet for current or transitioning service members to continue their selfless service and enjoy the camaraderie of like-minded individuals. Patriotism and selfless service carries on in our mission to protect public land and water access with the ethical chase of wildlife. Ryan Cal Callahan is the Meat Eaters Director of Conservation and a national board member of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. Cal has been a passionate member of the outdoor community and having grown up hunting and fishing, guiding and playing in the West. Trevor Hubbs joined the Army after high school and got his jump wings, serving as an infantry squad leader for six years before getting his bachelor's degree while serving as an ROTC instructor at Eastern Illinois University. Hubbs received his graduate degree from Notre Dame University in 2019 and began volunteering for the Armed Forces Initiative in 2021, running skills camps and working closely with the program. Additionally, Colonel Timothy Osmer, the Washington State G3, and the driving force behind getting all the Washington National Guard members, the Sportsman Package, free of charge, also joins us today. This package allows every member of the Washington National Guard to hunt deer, elk, bear, cougar, and small game with no out-of-pocket costs as a thank you to our service. Let's get after it. We have a professional obligation for the ethical application of, uh, of force. You can have a growth mindset where you're always achieving for better. This is about us, about our guard, our reputation. We are all in this together. Outthink, outmaneuver, and outfight the enemy. If you wage war, do it energetically and with severity. This is the only way to make it shorter and consequently less inhumane. Hey, thanks for joining us again for another episode of the Raven Report podcast. Today, I, as, as a hunter, am especially excited to uh, to have our uh, our guest on, but we have some here in the uh, PCRC on Camp Murray uh, that I want to get to first. First is is uh, Colonel Tim uh, Osmer. Can I say hello, sir? Hello. Hello. So, uh, and then uh, next we have uh, Trevor Hubbs, who is the... Uh, the the guy for BHA AFI and we'll get into that uh here uh, in a second for everyone to say anything yeah happy to be here thanks for having me awesome and then uh finally we have uh mediators only director of conservation Mr. Ryan Callahan Ryan how are you thanks for having me awesome you already too many acronyms for me yeah, well, good. Well, hopefully, confuse you more. If you if you leave super confused, I'll know I've done my job correctly. And so, um, so uh, yeah. So the reason why we wanted to have you on is that that Washington has a uh, a program where we give free tags. Like if you were to buy it, it would be known as the uh, the Sportsman's Package. So it's it's uh, elk tags, deer tags, cougar, bear, the whole nine yards uh, to all of our National Guardsmen for free. You simply you send an email, you get a verification email, and send it off. Now, why that's important is because uh, is uh, we're increasing the number of hunters that are in the state. And we're, I would, what I'd like to, to do is get you, Ryan, to explain why it's important from a conservation standpoint that we have as many hunters in Washington State as possible. Oh, boy, that's an easy first question. Uh, well, uh, just like, um, let's say golfers, right? Like, even if you call yourself a golfer, you don't necessarily want to associate with all golfers. So we need as many good ethical hunters as, as we can possibly get. Right. 
And really, it's because we're a powerful lobbying force out there because we pay for conservation as we, as we know it in this country. So um, all those license fees, tag fees, um, permits, stamps, they go into various conservation funding at, at the state level. Um, your federal duck stamp, of course, goes at, at the federal level. And then those dollars get turned into really like the physical boots on the ground conservation stuff that everybody, even the freeloading hikers, <laughs> get to go enjoy every single day, even when it's not hunting season. So um, when people start to look at uh, the rights that we enjoy as, as hunters and anglers, a lot of times that does come down to, well, how many of them are there? Right. And so to succinctly answer your question, the reason that that matters is having strong numbers on paper matters a lot to the people that don't interact with hunters and anglers every single day and can be in the position to make decisions. Right. Yeah. So um, you, you mentioned like license sales, uh, you know, if let's say we had, um, you know, like there's 6,000 ish guardsmen in Washington state. If there was like all of a sudden 6,000 uh, hunters or well, hunters uh, in the, in the program, how big of a, a swing, how big of a change would that mean for Washington as the state itself? Well, from a, a revenue standpoint, it, it could be quite a bit um, from a pressure standpoint, like a opportunity standpoint. I wouldn't want 6,000 guardsmen uh, sitting on my favorite salmon stream with me. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, uh, we're very busy, but, so I don't know how often they would actually get to go hunt. So, <laughs> Right. Yeah. Um, okay. So from a, a financial standpoint, so could you, uh, there's a lot of guys uh, that hunt in, in, in the guard, uh, but they may not understand fully the way like the Pittman Robinson system works. Could you kind of give us like a, a one once over on like how that works and why having those, uh, those tags are, are really important? Yeah. So Pittman Robertson is a really interesting thing. It, it kind of became a political football here about a year ago. Um, uh, it, it, which is a bit of a sidetrack, but um, uh, Pittman and Robertson uh, were the, the leading authors of an act to change an existing firearms tax that we have in the United States um, that would use those tax dollars specifically for conservation. And, um, Pittman Robertson has changed over the years. Um, and really this, this kicked in like, uh, as a way to help, um, restore a lot of species that had really been beaten down by over harvest loss of habitat. Um, and then as we've kind of progressed out of um, with certain species in certain areas, um, some really critical times, 
uh, Pittman Robertson has been amended over the years to include more things. So it originally it was long guns, shotguns, and um, ammunition. And then it also was changed to include handguns, handgun ammunition, and then uh, archery equipment as well. And the cool thing about these is this isn't like a, some heavy handed government approach. There was a lot of serious bipartisan lobbying efforts and that came from the ground up from the uh, hunting community at first saying like, you know, we want this stuff to improve and you know, how do we make sure our, our dollars go to the right place? And then um, on the fishing side of things, Dingle Johnson, would be the the fishing excise tax and um that's that's got a similar path as well so um firearms ammunition archery equipment all have a percentage when those goods are either um created at their factories here in the u.s before they go to the retailer shelves that's the manufacturer pays the tax um, or uh, as they're imported into the U S the manufacturer pays the tax. Um, and uh, yeah, we, the last oh, six, seven years have been the all time highest revenue years for the Pittman Robertson tax. And, and, you know, it's over a billion dollars. So it's, it's a significant, amount of money and but keep in mind that's that's uh recreational shooting falls falls in there too right so um not necessarily everybody who's out there with a hunting frame of mind uh is um sorry everybody's if you're buying ammunition or firearms which i think is awesome and every manufacturer i've ever spoken to too says the exact same thing uh, they're very proud of the fact that they're funding conservation in the country. So, right. So, how does um, license sales, or in our case, like let's say I go down there and I get a license, how does that impact uh, those funds coming into the state? So, that if you're buying a, a license in a state, that goes to the state fishing game program. Typically, most fishing game programs in the u.s uh receive very little if not zero percent of any general fund taxes so they're purely existing on license and tag sales and they can also write grants matching grants so they they'll take those license and tag sales and um match for larger grants that can be taken out of those Pittman Robertson dollars too. Right. So access habitat, things like that, they can apply for those uh, federal dollars, the federal tax money and bring those back to the state for uh, habitat access programs. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So like by, by like increasing the number of hunters that you have, like you, you're going to be able to access more of the, uh, those dollars because they see a, a demand on, on the state level. Am I reading that correct? Yeah. If the more purchases, it's not like a, a user to lose it thing. 
right? So um, if everybody buys a deer tag, it's awesome for conservation because it's more money in the pot, but that doesn't trigger the state agency to then say like, oh my gosh, everybody bought a deer tag. We must have lost a ton of ton of deer. They're still, uh, and then like adjust the regulations to where nobody can hunt deer next year because we had a 2000% increase in tag sales, right? right. There's still um, harvest reporting and then um, survey reporting, population survey reporting, either through camera traps or um, flights and things like that. So that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. So I, I want to, I don't want to leave uh, uh, Trevor out. Uh, so uh, you've been sitting there patiently while we're talking, talk, talk uh, just kind of general conservation nuts and bolts. What, um, so tell us about BHA and then tell us about their armed forces initiative and like how we can connect with, with you guys. Yeah. So backcountry hunters and anglers is a public land advocacy nonprofit. Um, the mission is backcountry hunters and anglers seeks to ensure North America's outdoor heritage of hunting and fishing in a natural setting through education and work on behalf of wild public lands, waters, and wildlife. So within Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, which is this large uh, international organization, I run the Armed Forces Initiative, which is about 14,000 uh, individual members of called the Armed Forces Community within BHA. I'm not super attached to the name, whatever uh, right. whatever uh, the marketing folks branded as is probably best. I'm not a marketer. The um, So what we do then is specifically, uh, it's probably best to just talk a little history. So in 2018, backcountry hunters and anglers did an annual survey for all their members. Like, hey, where do you live? What uh, conservation issues are most important to you? Is it public land advocacy? Is it access to public land? Is it taking new people hunting? You know, whatever. So one of the questions in that survey in 2018 was, do you associate with the armed forces? Are you active duty, reserve, National Guard, veteran, uh, military spouse, Gold Star family? That kind of thing. So what was interesting is 12% of BHA members at that time said that they were members of this armed forces community. That's unique because if you look, uh, depending on the on the survey you look at nationally, uh, we're between like 5 and 7% of the general U.S. population. So backcountry hunters and anglers was double that in 2018 without really focusing on it at all. Like just doing the general, like, let's go advocate for hunting and fishing. So... That uh, kind of spurred a whole bunch more research. That's when they brought me in to like, all right, well, let's figure out why we appeal to this community so much. And there's a whole litany of reasons, one of which is, especially on the active duty side, is you're moving every three years. And uh, even, it does you no good to buy an 80-acre whitetail paradise in southern Arkansas when right. you're, for, you're in Fort Bragg, then you're at Fort Wainwright, then you're at Fort Carson. Like, So you kind of, you're forced to use these public lands and waters. Now, the second part that was really interesting to come out of this research is over half of BHA's military members were doing all the leadership tasks. They were serving on their state boards. They were doing the grassroots kind of um, riverbed cleanups, trail cleanups, uh, access projects, building docks, wood, wood duck boxes, all that stuff. So then BHA got really excited, like, wow, you're telling me that 5% or 6% of our total membership is doing over 50% of the leadership and they're all in this armed forces community. How do we, like we did this on accident. How do we focus on it? How do we really engage this kind of core group of conservationists? So in 2019, uh, we started trying to get funding to make the armed forces initiative in 2020, it became a thing. 
Um, we did our first kind of event trying to figure out who we are, what we want to do. And that was uh, taking 18 people on a mule deer hunt in eastern Montana, 18 veterans, trying to explain, hey, this is why public land matters. This is why hunting and fishing matters. And this is how you, as a member of the military community, can kind of preserve these American, uniquely American pursuits, right? Um, so since those 18 people, currently we have about 14,000. Um, I got brought on as staff in 2021. Um, so from that one trip in 2020, in 2022, we did over 100 trips and we took 1,700 uh, members of this community out in across 46 states. So we're doing pretty well and it's not anything like special. There's no secret ingredient, right? It's there's a large population of this in the military community that enjoys hunting and enjoy fishing. They can see some of the, the natural value of these public lands and waters. The idea that anybody can go pick up a used bow at the bow shop. And if you're willing to walk far enough and work hard enough, you can go take a 160 inch whitetail in Wisconsin at Fort McCoy or, you know, a monster bear on Fort Bragg. Like you can do this. Like that's just something inherently that matters to the military community. Yeah. So what I do is I manage those 14,000 volunteers and the uh, the eight-person North American board of directors. We also include Canada. We have four Canadian provinces and I think six uh, installation bases in Canada that are part of the Armed Forces Initiative. So I've, I've, I got to force myself to say international instead of just uh, just right. American. Now. It's, a it's a change. Sorry. Well, so like I'll kind of bring this into the the tactical sphere. So like on this podcast, we end up having a lot of uh, information operations uh, people that that come on, and and we have the the fifty six uh, Tiog that's here in in uh, Washington. So it's like kind of a big thing. You used a phrase I think was like really interesting, and it's cool to hone in on is that you said it was a uniquely American. Now, three of us here that, that that are sitting in this in this room have actually hunted in Poland and and been in a place where there isn't public lands, and it is a weird, weird, weird experience. Uh, very different than anything that, that we grew up. Very interesting, but like, uh, but very, very different. Um, and so, like, I think like uh, by by saying that like hunting and fishing is is uniquely American, and the fact that you're leveraging all of these uh, these values and like character traits like you're saying like like most of the 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 armed forces are all like the guys that are doing the thing they're actually you know we have a strong bias for action we nurture that in our culture and we unleash it on, on the battlefield and apparently on the conservation world uh, as well so we're out there knocking things out that like uh it's interesting and, and we we start kind of getting into the uh the international uh you know soft power fight with like with adversaries Hunting and fishing could actually be somewhat of an interesting tool to use to kind of help bolster American values, American culture, and help kind of insulate us from uh, the threats of force that, that are coming from outside of the United States. Like I said, that's kind of a tactical nerdism, but it, it did kind of key in on uh, on that. And I think it's really, really interesting. So, um, uh, yeah, you want to respond to that? So. No, you're absolutely correct. It's, uh, it's something I really like to, you know, nerd out about, too. Um we have, we have Armed Force Initiative members in Germany, and we have Armed Force Initiative members at Vincenza, Italy, and the 173rd Airborne. Like, we've got AFI members across the board. So I'm frequently learning about, like, what is the process? Like, one of the projects working on right now is, all right, you get stationed in Germany. How can you hunt and fish on post, right? And it's a uniquely kind of German problem because a lot of these – it's a private club. You have to get access to a firearm. You can't keep a firearm in the barracks if you're E4 and below. Like, you've got – Sometimes some of these clubs you have to own land that's being hunted on. It's a it's a unique problem, but it's not uh, it's not an impossible problem to have. 
one of the the key parts that I really like to key in on is the Sykes Act. So in the, when it's late 40s, early 50s, um, the Sykes Act was passed. And somebody's going to write it in and say, your dates are wrong. Well, I'm sorry. I don't have Wikipedia pulled up. My bad. But um, the Sykes Act basically mandates the use of Department of Defense federal land for outdoor recreation for service members. So like coming out of World War II, they noticed like, hey, there's a real value to this stuff. Like if you read any Hemingway no- novel – like you can kind of see that, like he's dealing with being one of the like he was an ambulance driver in World War One. Uh, he kind of served in like an advisor role during the Spanish Civil War. Did a whole bunch of like military stuff as a journalist, and him dealing with that is working with fly fishing, saltwater fishing, upland hunting. Like, and and I mentioned Hemingway because every American read something from Hemingway in high school. It's it's required, so it's an easy thing for people to adjust to, right? right. But as like a science or like a policy, like that started turning heads like, hey, there is something important about these outdoor spaces. So each installation commander is required to have a plan for outdoor recreation on military bases, our DOD lands, right? And they're actually doing an amazing job at it. not to take anything away from the states or federal biologists, but there's 66 million acres. Somebody's going to mess me up on that too, but like there's 60 something million acres of federal public land that is owned by the Department of Defense. And there are I want to say 50 species that are in da- federally endangered species that only live on DOD lands. So like the biologists, the DOD natural resources crew are doing an amazing job, right? So it's like Fort Bragg. There's a little more hoops to jump through. I'm working with Ryan on uh, Anderson Air Force Base hunt right now. Uh, I say working with Ryan's doing most of the work. I'm just kind of chirping in every now and then making his life harder. But uh, <laughs> like there's a few more hoops to jump through to get to this public land and to use it. But it's 100% possible, and there is a real value to all servicemen and women like coming back and doing that, Like especially after the last 22 years of war. I mean, you guys have seen it. The colonel's seen it. Like, You have a year of training, a year of deployment, a year of rest. Then you move your family across the country. Yep. Then you do it all over again for 22 years. Like Having a weekend to go out and chase whitetail or quail or waterfowl, whatever you're into, that's a, that's a key piece of just what, what keeps you centered in the American pastime. You know, yeah, I'll affirm that 100 percent. I'll tell you this from uh, coming from an active duty standpoint, like uh, that was kind of like one of my TTPs whenever I showed up at a new place. It was like, OK, how do I hunt in New York or how do I hunt in Virginia or how do I hunt in whatever? And it became like this ongoing like quest. Like it took me I never had hunted beyond this side of the, the country before. And then I came out to Washington and that was like a whole other nut to crack. Like The other side of the country kind of follows a similar kind of uh, like pattern to like Arkansas or Texas or Louisiana, but like Washington, like the whole other ball game. It's very, very interesting. Very, very, very different. Oh, absolutely. That's uh that's the goal of our kind of active duty component. So we have 26 military installations where we have uh, like an official department of defense registered club. Right. So like, like uh, Fort Bragg is one uh, air Force Seymour Johnson, air force base, uh, camp Pendleton, Fort Carson, all these places where the goal is, so you're, you know, you're private hubs. You grow up in Southern Missouri. Yeah, you know how to whitetail hunt. You can do a little bit of quail hunting, but you, you sure can't saltwater fish. And right. if you're fly fishing, it's for bass with a six-weight rod. Now you go to Fort Benning, Georgia for your infantry school, and everybody yells at you for six months of your life. It's a miserable experience. You're definitely not hunting there. Then you get sent to Fort Bragg, North Carolina. I've been in North Carolina before. I don't know what you can hunt out here, but it looks cool. The ocean's like right over there. How do I do that? So one... I would have to private hubs would have to have the courage to 
ask his superior, his, his platoon sergeant, his squad leader, hey, do you know how to hunt and fish on post? And even if I could get up the courage to do that, that platoon sergeant got there six months before I did. He doesn't know. She doesn't know. Right. So having these clubs on base is one. Now, when you get sent to Fort Carson, like, oh, man, I can, you know, fly fish for alpine trout. I can go elk hunting like and it's an over the counter tag and it's not, you know, wildly expensive. How do you do it? That's kind of that's the hope of our installation clubs. And we're not we're not there yet. Like it's not mission success. We've got 26 out of whatever 500 bases there are. But uh, hopefully we keep doing our jobs and eventually you get stationed at a place and you immediately have a contact that can teach you how to hunt and fish in New York, Virginia, California, wherever. Right. No, from I, a I, public I, lands, all right. From a public land standpoint, I, I'd love nothing more than if uh, public lands were uh, declared uh, areas uh, key to national defense because, you know, our, our history as Americans are, are full of stories of hunters um, being very involved in, in the military. I think War 1812, uh, the British were marching on uh, a town outside of Philadelphia, and they ended up going completely around because they had heard that the militia there could uh, kill a squirrel out of a tree at like 200 yards. Um, and <laughs> right. So um, stories like that, aside from like being very cool to kids, um, do make sense, right? It's like you have people who are going into roles that may require um, accuracy, um, safety with firearms, and the ability to uh, maybe forage too. And um, and they're mixing it up with a bunch of people who don't have that experience. And we all know too that you put a bunch of young people in a spot on a weekend, there's a lot worse things they can do with their day off uh, than go hunting and, and fishing, right? So you right. may as well get the opportunity to make that choice. Yeah, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll I can substantiate both those points with stories from my, my active duty time. I remember I'll never forget the day that I finally got up in my my climber stand. I'm sitting up like I get about thirty feet and I sit down. I'm like I take a you know take a breather and my phone rings. And it it's about four in the morning and I, and I pick up the phone. I was, I was like you know it's one of my soldiers. He's freaking out because one of his buddies uh, was at a strip club in South Carolina, went to sleep. And then uh, she uh, like, she just kept on dancing. And next thing you know, the bouncers were hassling for all this money that he, that he doesn't have. And they need me to come get him out. And I was like, man, like if only you guys were hunting, we, like we could have a much better day than the day that I'm about to have. You know? <laughs> so, so like, there's that. And I'll tell you, like, I've only gotten, I've only ever gotten one ticket from a game warden. And it was actually on uh, Fort Benning, Georgia, because of exactly what Trevor was getting at is that like the, there's so like in order to hunt on post, it's actually really complicated. It's not necessarily like, it's not just like, I'm going to go out to this GMU and I'm going to do this thing based on this rule book or whatever. They'll, they'll turn ranges on and off and have like different areas where you can and can't hunt and things like that and I didn't know and I, I didn't know anybody else had hunted on on post so I just kind of like I parked my jeep on one side of a creek because I slipped into the other side, side of the creek and was was uh you know doing my thing I came back out had my muzzle loader still capped and got hunted for uh or got tagged for hunting in a restricted area even though I was just walking uh through this like area that had been turned off or whatever but it was like this nuance to hunting on post that Nobody even like I didn't know to ask. No one knew to tell me. So those clubs could be like super, super helpful in in kind of a you know taking care of that problem for sure. Yeah. Absolutely, the you know those. I cannot tell you how many stories I've heard from people that it's that um, 
failure to take a first step kind of mentality of it is too complicated. There's too many regulations. I haven't been doing this long enough. Uh, I'm just not going to deal with it. Right. And I have spoken with so many veterans at this point, just, just last weekend, I was hanging out with, with one on a BHA trip and, you know, had no idea how to even approach the process during his, you know, 20 plus years in the army and is now just retired and just starting to fish again. Right. Right. Now that he actually has the time to kind of take a day and actually figure it out. Well, uh, this is all interesting and stuff, but like, I don't want to, uh, um, like glance over the fact that you, Ryan, were uh, you're, you were a guide for how long before you uh, went to work for uh, uh, for in the conservation industry? Oh, yeah, I think I think my first guide's license was '01, and so I, I probably did a little over ten years. Okay. So, so uh, Colonel Osmer here is planning a trip to uh, Wyoming. Uh, to um, hunt antelope, right? Antelope and mule deer. Antelope and mule deer. So, like, this is your chance to make a, a disciple of the uh, of the good colonel. Tell him all the things that uh, that you know. Oh, I mean, I, <laughs> if you want a good antelope, there's so many antelope. I would I would concentrate on antelope and then have mule deer be your your fun opportunity when it pops up. Um, you're going to have so much fun that way because there's just a lot of animals and, and it's, it's fun to get picky and kind of be spoiled for once. Um, oh, and then, you know, antelope, it's all about the mass. So uh, the width of antelope's eyes about two inches. Um, so start with only bucks that are wider than, than the eye is wide. Um, and have that be your benchmark and you should be, should be just fine. So, um, short and fat are good <laughs> horns on an antelope. You know? Short, fat antelopes. Lessons transcend. Yeah. Well, there you go. <laughs> there you go. All right. Uh, go ahead. Oh yeah. Just, just, uh, I'm jealous of that hunt right now. I mean, that's, that's like the best combination of things that you can go after. Plus, everything else is typically in season if, if you're overlapping deer and antelope. So lots of different bird species out there and uh, bring a shotgun. We'll, we'll shoot you an invite, Cal. <laughs> there you go. Oh, I'd love it. <laughs> I'd love it. Um, raw antelope liver. So you, you ever had like uh, locks, like uh, salmon, you know, locks on bagels? Yeah. Right? Substitute the, the salmon with raw antelope liver. Interesting. Okay. very good there you give go. it a shot <laughs> yeah there you go um well so like uh i'm just gonna go around the horn like uh we've got several people here do you have any questions you'd like to ask i'll, I'll defer to sir if you got anything off the top of your head well cal this this is the third year that we've gone to wyoming i uh i went we got blown out of idaho while i was while i was deployed and uh normally we've been going to idaho since the mid 90s uh, chasing after elk and mule deer, and we we were kind of lucky because the GMUs we hunted, it was same deal where the elk and the deer overlapped, and you know you could uh, over the counter tags were readily available. But that year they reduced the number of non-resident, and 
reduce the overall number of tags. So we ended up doing the research and going to Wyoming. So I went that year with a couple of guys that had never hunted before, and two of the two of them uh, that hadn't hunted before, they both got shots. One of them got an antelope. Went back the next year with uh, with my youngest daughter, who's uh, she's now twenty one. She got her first antelope. Got the biggest one out of the six of us. So that was that was great. We put in for mule deer. Never got drawn there before. I'm definitely going to take your uh, take your tip on the liver. Get after that. And uh, we have failed to take a shotgun any time we've been back there. I think we're definitely going to put that in a toolkit this year. Because I love hunt, hunting upland, upland game. But I'm going to take these two nefarious characters with me, along with uh, probably four or five other people. And we're <clears throat> going to be hunting around the Gillette area. Uh, so right. not, not, you know, one of, the, one of the most notorious areas over there. But it, it's, uh, it's never for a lack of antelope. You know, every day you're out, you see countless numbers of them. Um, yeah. And as a guide, I guess the thing I'd pick your your brain on, because I've really struggled with this, taking taking new hunters out every year, is they want to shoot the first one they see. And trying to instill in them to exercise a little bit of patience or not take the first one they see. Um, what's your tips on that? Oh, I mean, if they're if they're brand new in the situations right then you know i agree it's 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 hard to pass things up as long as you do your work ahead of time and say hey this is what you could get if you hold out um and they know that then that's great and you can be there saying hey that is not the big end of the spectrum but if, you know, if it's a perfect shot and a fun situation, um, and, and especially first timers. And, and again, once you snap the cap on an antelope, your hunt's far from over out there. Right. There's tons of fun stuff to do. So, um, sometimes, sometimes you got to get that antelope out of the way to get to the birds. <laughs> right. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, and, and also, you know, the wind can be blowing 60 miles an hour out there. Um, I've shot a lot of antelope with a 300 wind mag uh, because of eastern Montana wind, yep. you know. So, um, you know, trying, trying just for that double long shot, but throwing a big heavy bullet out there that's not going to uh, be pushed around as much is is a solid option because you know sometimes your your week or weekend that you have um you is not going to be the best for hunting um or for shooting but hell antelope antelope is is fun you know so you can make it as challenging as you want and come up with rules and say you know nothing under 15 inches or something like that or you know the cutters have to be you know wider than the i2 or something like that but um at the end of the day it's fun to sit there behind the spotting scopes and the binoculars and and uh make good stocks and get your elbows full of prickly pear cactus you know so <laughs> right well there you go yeah, yeah, no no question you can't see me i'm awkwardly off on the side but uh appreciating the 
the back and forth that the, the topic Trevor brought up mm -hmm. about hunting on post. I just lived that uh, through going on JVLM the first time last year. So I, I'm I'm leaning towards people like Colonel Osmer to teach me how to hunt. Well, trying to teach my my oldest son uh, how to do it. So I, I tried to navigate uh, JVLM uh, last year, and you guys hit the nail on the head. It was like you know, figure it out the the whole entire step. Well, you got to go talk to so and so. You got to go talk to so and so. Yeah. So it's kind of cool to hear that you know you guys have an organization out there. Maybe I just miss JVLMs uh, that helps make it easier for you know for folks to right. get to it. Trevor, you said Washington's the the fastest growing state in either BHA or BHA AFI. Can you like clarify? Yeah, they like to say that, um, which is not untrue. It was true in September of 2022. Well, so we, we were in a promo of like a promotion, like trying to get more members. And uh, they grew the most and they got uh, like some Yeti coolers and some prizes that helps them get veterans outdoors and active duty members outdoors. But uh, yeah, if, if you're at all interested, I kind of try and keep the emails and the contact info as simple as possible. So Washington is just W-A-A-F-I at backcountryhunters.org. Connecticut, C-T-A-F-I, Virginia, V-A-A-F-I. Like you can't stump me here. They're pretty right. simple. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Yeah. So, so like, uh, if uh, if uh, Major Brown here decided to, to get tied into it, we just send him an email, and then what would happen? Yeah. So you'd get a response. Uh, the Washington crew is pretty on it. You'll probably have a response within twelve hours. Um, a lot of the head guys there are still uh, DoD employees, so they're uh, like a lot of them were working. Two of them work like weapons testing, I think, for uh, over at Bremerton, like naval stuff, which really cool job but that means they're also up like it's not weird for me to get an email at 2 30 in the morning right those guys because that's when they're up doing work on their phones or whatever but uh, yeah you get an email um you can also just go to like if you googled bha the first one is gonna the first result is gonna be boston housing authority don't click that one the okay. second result <laughs> is gonna be uh like beta hydraulic acid don't click that one either but the third result will be backcountry hunters and anglers that's the one you want so if you click that one you go to programs, Armed Forces Initiative, or right there. Um, bunch of like stuff, mission values, all that stuff. But if you go to the events tab, I mean, we've got 130 something events planned for 2023. So you could filter by your state, you could filter by your zip code, do all that stuff. So even if you didn't want to reach out to anybody, you just wanted to show up, like all the events are out there. Let's see. The next one for Washington is. Stand by, I got a bunch of turkey events i'm filtering through so uh the armed forces initiative washington has a 3d archery shoot uh at the tacoma sportsman's club in pulley up washington probably didn't say that right yeah <laughs> but that's uh that's may 13th they just had a how to turkey hunt clinic uh last weekend but um no they're very active like pretty pretty on it Awesome. All right. Well, uh, do you have any uh, questions that, uh, for us? Can we demystify the military in uh, any way, shape, or form? But Trevor, you served, right? Yep. I was in the Army uh, Infantry for eight years. Oh, where were you at? Um, so I did a uh, little bit of time at, uh, at, at Bragg and then uh, was an ROTC instructor at Eastern Illinois University and uh, then did some time in the Illinois National Guard. Oh, okay. I, I too uh, shared that uh, APMS job uh, at WSU. That was probably one of the funnest. Uh, Josh, I'm that bystander guy out in the center. Uh, but yeah, that was a that was an awesome opportunity. And he, the unique thing about the guard is, uh, I had two of my cadets that that I taught at WSU that are now 
you know, followed me through the uh, through their time uh, and, and our company commanders, PLs, and just kind of watching them grow has been super, super cool. But yeah, that, that was a fun job there. Uh, it's, uh, so I wanted to go be a drill sergeant is what I wanted. And then um, you get uh, you get slotted with the ROTC program. And I was like, oh, this is I don't want to teach a bunch of nerds that are going to be officers like this. That's <laughs> super dumb, like not into it. Um, got some advice from uh, my my senior NCO at the time. He's like, hey, man, go ask any major. Go ask Lieutenant Colonel who their military science instructor was. Right. That's the only chance an E6 and E7 is going to get to influence that many would be officers, would be lieutenant colonels, like because they all know it. Everybody yeah. knows who their who their uh, ROTC guy was. So no, it was a great job. I really loved it. Uh, let me get my bachelor's degree. Very uh, very fortunate for that opportunity. I still remember mine was a guy named Dwayne Hudson. He uh, yes, he, whatever that guy said was accurate. Like, yeah, that, <laughs> people always remember your your NCO that's getting his LinkedIn before uh, before we commission. So yeah, great experience. That's awesome. All right. Well, um, so uh, I Trevor, you kind of like ran uh, through how to connect with you. Uh, is, would, what else do do our soldiers need to know about BHA AFI that we haven't covered already? Um, the biggest thing is we are thirty six months old. Like right. we're th- like we're, we're three years old. We've got um, about forty percent of the total BHA membership is military. It's a very military friendly organization. Cost you twenty five dollars a year, and uh, if you really want it, I could send you a spreadsheet of exactly where I spend <laughs> all of your money because it's uh, there's just me right now, so I'm I'm pretty easy to to work around. Um, if you have a question, you don't see it on the website, um, you can't uh, find an answer anywhere. Like, just reach out. If anything else, just Armed Forces Initiative, all spelled out at backcountryhunters.org. I can I that email is constantly monitored by either me or one of the interns or somebody like we will find you an answer. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. Test us. Try it. I think uh, one of the big differences too is I, I think, yeah, the, the question of like, well, how is the money spent is one that every nonprofit gets. Um, one of the things that Trevor has been doing that very few nonprofits do is uh, training individual members on how to go effectively lobby for your hunting and fishing rights. You're, and um, if you're in the armed forces or retired a veteran, you have a, a unique voice and it's incredibly effective. And if you're interested in conservation or, you know, you started having kids or you just, kind of got back into hunting and you want to make sure that stuff's around because it's exactly what you thought it was or it's it's awesome it's a great way to spend your time um and you want to make sure that that stuff sticks around you can get training from bha afi to go be an effective advocate um at fish and game committee meetings at um your state legislature when it's in session because every Every session, there's a lot of things that get dreamed up by people who aren't outside, aren't doing things, um, and they don't know it's a bad idea sometimes until you stand in front of them and tell them who you are, why you're there, and your perspective. Right. That's really good advice. Well, that's, that's what I was thinking when you said 6,000 guard members is that's 6,000, um, you know, vote 6,000 voices and, uh. Not, you know, not telling anybody which way to vote, but uh, whatever you're into, whether it's salmon or steelhead or, um, you know, 
blacktail or elk, like just whatever makes you passionate about the outdoors, go be a voice for that because it does mean more like for better or worse. When you stand up at a public hearing and say, as a tax attorney, I think this, it just doesn't matter as much to uh, folks in politics as when you say, Hey, as a veteran of the United States army and a volunteer for backcountry hunters and anglers or whatever your shtick is like, I think this, like you get a little bit more credibility and it's uh, we should use it. The card won't work forever. Right. hundred percent. Well, guys, thanks for so uh, for taking the time to be on and kind of educating our guys uh, on uh, why being a hunter makes a positive impact uh, in the state of Washington or whatever state they, they may find themselves in and then how to uh, connect with uh, BHAFI. And uh, you, Ryan, uh, if, if somebody wanted to reach out to you, how do they get a hold of you? Uh, you can track me down on Instagram very easily. Uh, old Cal 406 or right in to ask Cal at the meat eater.com. Um, and you know, podcast comes out every week. So, right. I just followed him while we were doing it. Oh, you just picked up a follower. So congratulations. Uh, All right. well, thank you. Yeah, no. And, uh, yeah, thank you uh, so much for what you all do too. It means, means a lot to us. So, um, appreciate you. And, and, uh, thanks for considering the, the conservation angle. All right. Yeah, it's our honor. Well, guys, thanks so much. We'll see you next time. Yeah, thanks for having me. This has been the Raven Report Podcast, the official podcast of the 81st Striker Brigade Combat Team. If you're interested in seeing if you have what it takes to join our team, go to our Instagram and click the link in the bio. Click the join link and connect with us.